Uh, and I wanted to thank all of you for joining us this afternoon for our program on environmental justice. This program is co-sponsored by the BBA's Civil Rights and Civil Liberties section and the BBA's Environmental and Energy Law section. This collaboration between our sections reflects the importance of environmental justice issues to the work and the focus of both of our sections. I'm Liz Ritvo from Brown Rudnick and I'm co-chair along with Dan McFadden of the ACLU of Massachusetts of the BBA's Civil Rights and Civil Liberties section. Our program today will be moderated by Stacy Rubin, co-chair of the Environmental and Energy Law section. The program has been a long time in planning, delayed and rescheduled because of the pandemic. And I wanted to thank Jeanette Eknem for her help in the early planning of the program. And now I'd like to introduce our moderator, Stacy Rubin. Stacy is a senior attorney at Conservation Law Foundation, focused on transportation advocacy. Her role at CLF combines her expertise on issues at the intersection of climate mitigation, community health, and environmental justice. She co-chairs the Global Warming Solution Act Implementation Advisory Committee's Climate Justice Working Group. This working group aims to ensure that the Commonwealth's climate policies benefit environmental justice populations and redress years of historic inequities. Stacy has been advocating for environmental justice throughout her legal career, including her prior work at the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities and Alternatives for Community and Environment, ACE. And during her time at ACE, Stacy partnered with community leaders to negotiate the Massachusetts Executive Order on Environmental Justice. With that, I'll turn our program over to our moderator, Stacy. Thank you very much, Liz. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon. The Boston Bar Association is actively working to increase the number of speakers of color at events and to think about how the association can broaden its discussions and learnings on racial justice. I'm thrilled to see such great interest and attendance at today's event focused on environmental justice. Our goal for today's event is to highlight the voices of environmental justice leaders and decision makers, as well as to share pro bono needs of various environmental justice and other nonprofit organizations with attorneys who may be able to provide those resources. We have three accomplished panelists with many years of experience working to achieve environmental justice. First, I'd like to um, talk about Dwayne Tyndall. Dwayne is ACE's executive director. He has over 25 years of professional experience in economic development, community and neighborhood development, youth development, and workforce development. Throughout his career, Dwayne has effectively led capable and diverse teams and has also been able to communicate complex public policies to various stakeholders and show how community-based partnerships can build stronger communities and empower residents and businesses to take active roles in their neighborhoods. Welcome, Dwayne. Our second speaker is Rishi Reddy. Rishi is the Director of Environmental Justice for the Massachusetts Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. Before taking up this post in December of 2019, she spent 25 years as an environmental lawyer in state and federal government 
working in a wide variety of practice areas. In addition to her legal work, Rishi has served on the board of directors for South Asian Americans Leading Together, a national civil rights organization, was the Massachusetts legislative liaison for Amnesty International, and is the award-winning author of two works of fiction, Passage West, a novel uh, just published this year in 2020, and Karma and Other Stories from 2007. Welcome, Rishi. And our third panelist is Counselor Lydia Edwards. Counselor Edwards has spent her entire career as an advocate, activist, and a voice on behalf of society's most vulnerable. She served as the deputy director within the mayor's office of housing stability, where she was responsible for developing and delivering innovative solutions to fight displacement and brought together a variety of stakeholders, landlords, management companies, housing authorities, and tenants. Counselor Edwards worked as a public interest attorney with Greater Boston Legal Services, focusing on a variety of issues, such as fighting for access to unemployment insurance, back wages, fair treatment for domestic workers, and combating human trafficking. Recently, Counselor Edwards has been fighting for historic concessions from Boston's largest ever developer, Suffolk Downs, in addition to working on passing a first-in-the-nation affirmative fair housing zoning amendment that would provide zoning for equitable housing. Furthermore, Counselor Edwards has filed charter amendments to change the city's budgetary powers, including civic participatory budgeting. Finally, as you'll hear today, Counselor Edwards continues to fight Eversource, striving to prevent them from putting in a substation in a low-income residential neighborhood along the Chelsea Creek. Welcome, Counselor Edwards. So I'm going to open it up to our panelists and ask uh, Dwayne to start by answering the question, what does environmental justice look like in your work? Um, thank you, Stacey. Um, environmental justice means addressing the impact of systemic racism and policy making, redlining, the sitting of toxic and polluting facilities in communities of color and low-income communities, and intentional, intentional under-resourced and over-policing of those same neighborhoods. The people most impacted by these issues are people leading the work, which is REAP, which is our youth organizers, um, and our community in general, and the development and transit people from Roxbury and other black and brown neighborhoods are the one holding decision makers accountable at the F FMCB, B BPDA and the city council. Um, not looking at issues in the vacuum, impacts of COVID-19 on public health and the economy are EJ issues too. Um, communities that are impacted every day by things most neighborhoods take for granted are basically frontline communities. And, um, and this is ground zero for a lot of ethical, moral policy decisions um, for our communities and our society in general. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dwayne. And Rishi, I'd love for you to answer that same question. What does environmental just, justice look like in your work? Yeah, um, as, um, as a EHA director for EEA, it is environmental justice all the time. And it my role has both an outward looking and an inward looking aspect to it. Outward looking is 
um, to uh, facilitate the outreach, uh, to be available to uh, folks in Massachusetts EJ populations and neighborhoods. Um, the inward looking role is to um, encourage, assist, facilitate staff at EEA and all of our agencies into looking at their programs and policies with an EJ lens. And we have many um, policies, laws on the books that we need to um, implement. We are continuing to do that work. Um, we have many programs underway uh, to uh, have a more environmentally just Massachusetts. And um, I see that as a priority in my work. We're led by the environmental justice policy of 2017 and an executive order as well at the governor's office level. So um, this is what uh, I've been doing since I've taken on the role. Thank you, Rishi. And I'm thrilled that you mentioned the Executive Order on Environmental Justice from 2014. That document specifies the continued staffing of your particular position. So you've now been in your role for a little over one year, um, uh, or almost a year. Can you tell us more about what you are planning to do and, and how the Executive Office for Energy and Environmental Affairs is looking to fully comply with the Executive Order and the Environmental Justice Policy? Yeah, so um, the, one of the priorities in the Environmental Justice Policy is to um, have the, um, the Secretariat fashion an environmental justice strategy that would include all of um, the EEA agencies. And so that is one of my primary goals in taking on the role. Um, it, you know, this is a long-term project. This is a project that we're not gonna see completion of until the end of next year. But there's so much work to be done more immediately. And so while we've been doing that type of long-term planning and strategy, we've also been doing other things that the EJ policy has required of us, such as um, appointing environmental justice points of contact with each of our six agencies, as well as offices um, and authorities that are affiliated with us, such as MEPA, such as the Mass Water Resources Authority, um, CZM, um, as well as DEP, DP, DPU. So um, we have gotten those points of contact in place now. This is to facilitate um, our outreach to um, EJ communities and to also have members of those communities be able to have one specific person that they can um, contact to have questions answered, to um, raise issues with. Um, the other um, aspects that I've started, Stacy, since I've taken on the role is um, we've started an environmental justice task force to look at um, the two facets of EJ analysis that I think state government needs to undertake. One is the aspect about public participation and outreach, um, and also the language requirements, the language services that are necessary to have that really be an effective means of communication um, in all of our programs, whether it's regulatory, whether it's grant making, enforcement, but as well, the harder thing to do, which is an, an environmental justice analysis about the substance of our programs, about the more difficult harder to gauge, harder to quantify aspect of environmental justice. And this is 
what, as Duane has mentioned, has long-seated roots. Um, it begins with redlining. It continues to this day and holds in all sorts of discipline, disciplines, such as housing, such as public health. So since I've taken on the role um, in December of last year, this is the, the two sides that I've been looking at. Um, the role was empty for three and a half years. So there's a lot of work to be done, you know, when, and we're trying to get all of the agencies at the same level um, of awareness and work. So th that's how we've been proceeding to date. Thank you, Rishi, that's excellent. Uh, our next question is for Dwayne. Dwayne, tell us about a couple of the challenges that you and your colleagues and members at ACE are working to overcome regarding environmental justice. Oh, and if you can just unmute yourself, that would be great. Yeah, ACE has a quarter of a century of work dealing with certain issues. One is dealing with the MBTA, um, holding accountability in a very bureaucratic system that is chronically underfunded. Um, the T-Riders Union working to hold the MBTA mass dot accountable for pushing the T to operate in a way that meets riders' needs in the terms of social distancing. Um, our community has historically been underserved um, and overpolluted by the MBTA. Um, we need 200 more buses to meet demands of riders pre-COVID with social distancing requirements, even with drops in ridership, that sort of investments is still necessary. So this grind of working with this quasi-governmental agency we call the MBTA has always been a challenge for underserved black and brown communities. On top of that, we have real estate development issues, um, desperate need for housing in Boston um, to prevent displacement and kind of mitigate the effects of gentrification. Um, but the development is taking place doesn't really meet the community needs. So we having luxury apartments, but um, our medium income for the for the neighborhood of Roxbury is 29K. So the luxury and the actual families, is, it's a struggle. And we are are using um, a firmly furthering fair housing um, processes, regulations, and we also are very engaged with fair housing and fair housing planning tools. The other piece is utility justice, um, the lack of regulation on the competitive supplies market. Third-party utility firms are going door-to-door -to, -door to poor black and brown communities and signing them up to very bad deals that are going to cost them more money in the end we are currently fighting this process um, with, you know, allies such as the lawyers, lawyers for, um, for civil rights. And we just had a um, town hall meeting and a public hearing also on those issues. So those are like three of the issues that we are really, really is front and center for our communities. And, you know, pre-COVID and during this pandemic right now, it's really, um, it's really important to kind of address those longstanding issues that impacted our community for multiple generations. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Sounds like you're incredibly busy over there doing really important work. Uh, and I just wanted to share with all of our attendees today, we've got a series of questions that the panelists will be answering and then we'll open it up um, to everyone for some more Q&A afterwards. 
Our next question is for Counselor Edwards. Uh, can you share with us two challenges that you are working to overcome as a city councilor to advance environmental justice? First of all, I want to apologize for being late. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Um, and so uh, there's two, two challenges, but I want to say it, it really does come filtering down at the local level. It's most acute when you lack federal leadership. And I just wanted to put that out there. You know, when you have people who deny science at the helm of some of the most biggest and most powerful and well-funded enforcement agencies, we're already working at a deficit. But in my district specifically, um, in East Boston, there's two major issues I would say that you could point to as um, trying to at least advance environmental justice in the conversation. The entire process with dealing with a substation, which we have opposed and come out against, it is near a playground. It is in the densely populated area of people of color. Um, it is not proven that it's necessary. And I guess I can list the injustices that come with it. One, Eversource has defined that we need them. Eversource then gets to charge us to uh, build the infrastructure. So they, they, they spend no money. Um, and then, uh, so we have to pay for it and get it. And then they pick the location. Now, all of those things, um, the other, other, other component is when they did their community process, it was to the utter exclusion of Spanish speakers and non-English speakers. Um, they did so, um, they went door to door, they said, and uh, didn't bother to bring anyone who spoke Spanish in the highest concentrated area of Spanish speakers in East Boston. Um, so, and they, they failed to look at other alternatives, alternative energies, anything that would actually improve the life and health of the community. They came in for profit and the process set up another injustice, how it goes to the EFSB, how it goes through these supposed agencies that are supposed to advocate for community has been just further de uh, devastating for a lot of us to feel totally ignored and unseen. The other very quick one I'll say is specifically with regards to creating, when we're creating a small city, if you will, or a whole new neighborhood, um, Suffolk Downs, if you will. You know, this is where we actually can eye it with, an, an, a, a, with a perspective of environmental justice and raising the standards. And so as Dwayne had mentioned, AFFH standards, affirmatively furthering for housing and seeing it through that lens, who gets to be there? The amenities such as two T-stops on, on the uh, property, that they're planning a shuttle service. How do we make sure that when we're planning for our future passive houses they're bringing in, they're bringing in so many environmental protections, but we have to make sure that those protections match our diversity and income, and that regardless of where they are spread, everyone has equal access to those wonderful amenities, to the tea to the stops, to the um, beautiful greenhouses, to the uh, green roofs. That, that is where we can start to plan with that eye towards equity because environmental justice and even just beauty, truly honestly having access to see the marsh or do you see the back of another building because you're in the low income housing section and making sure we don't have low income housing sections when you have beautiful things to see. So it's, it's kind of responding to an old issue but also being able to plan towards a beautiful opportunity. And those are two things we're balancing right now. Thank you, Councillor Edwards, excellent. Um, the next question I want to address to all three of our panelists. A cornerstone of environmental justice is to ensure meaningful participation for limited English proficient speakers. Um, we really have not seen consistent um, 
policies across agencies in terms of following language access laws and policies. Um, can you each talk about what you are doing to advance language access? And I'd love for um, Prishi to start. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. Um, uh, since I've been on um, board with this role, language access has been a real priority at EEA. And uh, we've been working to get all of the agencies up to speed and to enhance our public participation techniques. So for instance, the upcoming um, 2050 uh, roadmap under the Global Warming Solution Act is gonna go through a robust statewide outreach process. And we're having those documents as well as um, having oral interpretation in the top languages in Massachusetts that are spoken by people who have limited English proficiency. Um, so that's sort of a high level uh, language outreach service that we're providing. But another priority that I've had is that every single one of our agencies sort of all the way down to the fingers of the frontline folks who are implementing our programs, our grants and our policies that we are able to incorporate language access um, and enhance outreach in EJ neighborhoods in this way. So we're, we are in the process of setting apart some resources so that we would be able to um, take advantage of language services in an easier fashion. We have state vendors who are already on board who do that work and we will be taking advantage of their services. So that is a big priority for us right now. I wanna say as we move forward on this, as you'll see more of an awareness, um, even on our website, that I invite people to give us um, feedback on this. This is something that we could really use the assistance of our neighborhood groups in helping us get this right. Thanks, Rishi. Dwayne, can you share more about what you'd like to see in terms of language access improvements? Um, we are calling on all decision makers to address language access in all meetings. Um, I think it's a, it should be a kind of like a political consequence when you deny people the ability to communicate in public hearings. Roxbury have many different languages. Um, we are committed as an organization, as in our community-based organizations, to make sure that language access is the cornerstone of our work on um, language justice, language access is a cornerstone of our work. And if community-based organizations with our very, very small budgets could pull it off, we expect that city, state um, meetings should also be able to pull it off. Um, the EJ legislation included provisions to require proponents of projects to pay for interpretation and translations of materials into language that people in the community speak other than English. And, and in short, we have the resources, we have, we have the translators, now it's just developing the political will, and if the political will does not exist, it should be a certain level of a political consequence when you, when you basically bar folks from being able to communicate just because of language, and we have the resources, we have the materials to make, make community uh, meetings accessible to all people. Thank you. Thank you, Duane. And Councillor Edwards, can you share what you specifically are doing to increase language access and any other policies that the City of Boston is doing? Sure. Um, so we, the City of Boston has a language access ordinance uh, sponsored originally by and passed um, when, by Michelle Wu. 
uh, Councilor Mejia has, has sent in some updates to that application or to that ordinance uh, to make sure that we are seeing everything through a lens of people who don't speak English. Um, that we make sure that they feel as included as part of this process as much as possible. Um, I would say, you know, it creates an office um, for language access in the, the newer version. Also, we have, at least my office specifically, but also this year in the pandemic, the city council staff has, due to Zoom's capabilities, created more pathways for people to speak and hear simultaneously testimony and also hearing data or presentations in their native language. I'm very proud about that. Um, and I've, we've continued to push that as we continue forward. The ZBA ordinance and the reform that ultimately became an executive order from the mayor's office has, due to my advocacy, language access as a key corner, cornerstone. You can imagine ZBA hearings that are dealing with permanent structures, often displacement, people not being able to afford them, and people couldn't speak English. And they were essentially not able to testify unless they brought somebody with them. So those are the small, I would, I would call them small, but those are things that we push for. Another thing I'm very happy about when we were adjusting the uh, payment plan for folks who owe the city taxes, we found out that the notices for liens that were going out saying you could lose your home to the city of Boston did not have anything in any other language. So we pushed on the very practical level, but also in the ordinance level as well. That's excellent. And one of the pieces of pushback that I've heard in my own advocacy to expand language access is the fear that, that agencies think that it'll actually take longer to do language access uh, work. And actually, in my experience, not it'll, it's more efficient because you are um, really making sure that the enhanced participation happens early and often, and you're reducing the pushback that happens later on. Uh, and I've certainly been very impressed with the way Zoom has worked when you've got the simultaneous interpretation so that everybody can hear in their own language at the same time. So that's great. Um, so both uh, Dwayne and Councillor Edwards have mentioned the idea of displacement. So I'd love for each of you to talk about what are the tools currently available to address and prevent housing displacement and how are you using those tools right now or do you plan to use them in the future? Um, and maybe Dwayne, can we start with you? Oh, can you unmute Dwayne? Yes, we have um, several tools that we we can and will utilize. One is the fair housing um, regs, um, the firmly furthering fair housing, um, the Massachusetts analysis of impediments, the future assessment for fair housing that the city of Boston is working through, um, the fair housing zoning um, amendment that um, Councillor Edwards has been pushing, and and the greater pushing for greater oversight over the BPDA and reform of the BPDA, more accountability for development and development and planning in the city of Boston, hopefully thinking about getting a master plan for the city of Boston. And last but not least, on um, Fair Lending and Community Reinvestment Act, um, we have a long history in the city of Boston of, of activists and practitioners using fair lending on um, um, Community Reinvestment Act, fair housing, environmental justice, to really put a different lens on displacement and the legality of the displacement or the resegregation that is happening in the city of Boston and Boston Metro in general. And hopefully under a new administration that 
HUD is a little bit more free to kind of do a little bit more oversight and enforcement. Um, and yes, those are the tools that we are looking towards to kind of manage and engage displacement and resegregation. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Uh, Councillor Edwards? Well, I think there's a couple ways, several ways in which we're discussing uh, displacement. One, acknowledging it, right? There are a lot of people who want to call these things like natural, you know, not even gentrification, just market forces and things like that. And, and when we talk about displacement, it's an unnatural, without the will, without a natural kind of uh, moving of community. Uh, and so, and there's two ways I've seen in my community where this can happen. One is environmentally. We are, my, my district is the largest uh, coastal line in, 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 in Boston. I know Ed Flynn is gonna claim South Boston and whatnot, but no, no, mine's bigger. I have Charlestown, East Boston, and the North End, all of them, all of them, East Boston was an island, all of them have waterfront. And so if we do not get ahead of climate change, I love that they're building a bunch of luxury buildings on the, on the waterfront now in East Boston, but their, their response is to really just kind of put their mechanicals higher and let the water come in. And it's gonna to come to the traditional neighborhood who would be hurt by this. So there's a form of displacement that happens if you don't plan accordingly and with environmental justice in that mind, mindset. The other form is through um, people not being able to afford to stay, right? Or their buildings being purchased. The majority of people in my district, I think we're higher than the Boston average, we're at 72% of my district uh, rents. So you are traditionally more subject and vulnerable to displacement through eviction process or through outright just, um, you know, people buy the building and they just want you to leave. Um, so we have a higher percentage of renters. And so many, many, and in general communities of color, black and brown communities of color are renters. They're more than, than likely to be a homeowner. And so you have an economic vulnerability that makes them subject to uh, people purchasing around them and purchasing their building and, and getting rid of them. And so we have pushed for uh, the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Amendment to demand that before we give them zoning relief, that the person who purchases the building explains how they're meeting the federal mandate to make our communities more equitable. We're doing what the Trump administration has refused, actually just walked away from and just won't, will not do. Boston is coming up with its own standard. Uh, I wanna thank Dwayne, Kathy, uh, and so many amazing advocates who've been there from day one, day one on the task force, because it's beyond this amendment. So Duane has been immense at looking at equity planning and an equity culture in the city of Boston. And so it takes all of that to, to, to you know, name the thing, acknowledge that it's happening, acknowledge it's not natural, and also say this is a man-made issue, therefore the solutions can come from us as well. This is not beyond our control. Thank you so much, Councillor Edwards. And Rishi. What are you doing or planning to do to address displacement? Well, we certainly recognize the relationship between environmental justice and um, climate change and the, and the way that climate change will contribute to displacement. Um, you know, we are restricted a bit in terms of what we have jurisdiction and purview over in terms of displacement, um, you know, outside of that connection. But uh, environmental justice and the um, striving for it in terms of the Commonwealth effort from EEA will require a multidisciplinary approach. It will require input from the Department of Public Health. It will require input from housing. 
And, um, you know, there's several ways in which we are incorporating that type of multidisciplinary approach. Um, one is that we're going to be convenient governor's advisory council that will pull in folks from these other disciplines. Um, and we will need to have a coordinated effort to address these. And certainly, you know, what EEA has jurisdiction over will be part of that effort. Thank you. That's excellent. There's certainly more work to do, and uh, it definitely tends to work better when we've got community-based organizations, cities, and the state working collaboratively. So to that end, um, I'd, again, for all of you, what are opportunities for communities, municipalities, and the Commonwealth to work together and achieve environmental justice? Um, and why don't we start with Councillor Edwards on this one? Sure. I think the first thing I, I am proud to be a part of is talking with other communities. You know, we um, learn from Cambridge or Cambridge learns from Somerville or Somerville learns from Melrose. And, and in many cases, we have different ordinances that allow for us to do different things, but we're often facing the same issues. And so really talking amongst ourselves, pushing our state house to push for a statewide legislation that actually helps with environmental justice. I'm proud of my state representative, Adrian Madro, actually had the amendment uh, for environmental justice. So it was his leadership that got to make the, have the definition in our state laws. Um, and so it's really a matter of us um, being able to filter up and real concerns and practical understandings of how that the processes that we are part of are not inclusive, are not empowering people, then those processes are failing our communities and they are not just. So I, again, launch additional criticism on the EFSB process and that particular agency, Energy uh, Facilities and Siding Board is what I'm talking about, and how my constituents felt dejected leaving those conversations. They felt so ignored and so overlooked because there was no Spanish interpretation for them to talk about their neighborhood. And that I think is, is the worst thing that we can do. So as politicians, as local leaders, our job versus I, the systems that we have, if they're not advancing, empowering, or more just, then we must dismantle them or change them. And then you look towards the planning of the I for standards of equity. Um, again, learning from each other, learning from believing in science, and really pushing an advanced um, agenda, so. Excellent. Uh, Rishi, can you respond and add about the opportunities? Yeah, I um, think that it is impossible to um, advance environmental justice without having a partnership between the state, the municipalities, and the neighborhood groups who are on the ground. Um, partially that's because the state is a little too high up in the process to be able to know um, what the needs are of the environmental justice uh, neighborhoods and communities. We need the municipalities. We need to have input from the neighborhood groups to know what's going on um, in their own neighborhoods. And so that's a, a huge step that I would like to take and continue um, in EEA's work here. I will put forth a, um, example of a program where I think that we've done this pretty um, uh, successfully and that we've been continuing to do this. It's the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, the grant program in which the state is giving money to municipalities for in, um, resiliency work in terms of climate change in their, in their communities. <clears throat> the grant program encourages and advocates that the municipalities work with environmental justice groups 
within the boundaries of their town. In addition, it also encourages that those projects and programs that get funded are within those EJ communities. So in our grant criteria, we have weighted any, pro any projects that are going forward within an EJ community, and we have weighted positively any criteria where an EJ group is a group that's being partnered with. So in this program, we've encouraged the municipal government to recognize those groups and to empower those groups. And we've done that in a way that we have some muscle in terms of the money that we can give. Um, additionally, through that program, we're able to gain a lot of information about what's going on on the ground. So this is a model that you know, I would like to see repeated throughout state government in other programs that we're implementing um, is to have that threefold partnership. Excellent, thank you. And Dwayne, uh, bring it home. Tell us about how these opportunities for partnerships can really expand and achieve environmental justice. Well, there's already an EJ executive order, EJ policy, and variety of laws that impact EJ that are on the books. Um, we would like more collaboration, but the harsh reality, we need to develop more political will, more base building, more organizing. Um, the importance of EJ communities should be the importance of the greater society in general. Um, it may impact one, but eventually impact all. So the struggle is to try to develop some political will to, to move, to put some action, put resources, and put some muscle behind the things that are legislations and policies that's already on the books. And that's going to be basically a cross-sectional partners um, cross-sections of communities, um, standing in solidarity, moving this process forward. <clears throat> Thank you. That's great. Thank you. And there's been reference by um, several of you to the fact that there is pending state legislation that would expand protections for environmental justice populations. So um, I am really proud to be part of the Environmental Justice Legislati Legislation Table, which has been working um, some would say for more than a decade, but under its current name for the last two years uh, to pass state legislation this session that would really improve access. So the current bill that is pending um, is currently in conference committee. It's attached to the climate bill at the state house and what the legislation would do if enacted would update and create a statutory definition for what is an environmental justice population. And that has been a very thoughtful and data-driven approach that would limit uh, and reduce the current number of communities that are designated as environmental justice populations. The bill, if enacted, would also update the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act process to incorporate and require a cumulative impacts analysis for projects that are uh, near or affecting those environmental justice populations. It would increase the participation in state decisions that affect environmental justice populations. And finally, it would require every um, agency that is making decisions within the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs to consider environmental justice in their reviews and approvals. So with that background, um, I would like each of you to talk about how you think that legislation will affect your work. Um, and maybe we start with Rishi for this question. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. You know, in large part, um, many of the things in the legislation 
um, are things that we are already doing on, or, and that we're already planning on doing. Some, so some of those things are the public participation requirements that the statute um, lays out. Um, they are paralleled in federal Title VI requirements, which we are required to do because we're a recipient of federal funds. Um, so all of the, the enhanced public participation aspects are things that we're in the process of adopting if we haven't done so already. Um, the other uh, features that you mentioned that uh, the aspect of the definition of environmental justice populations, which is, at, which is um, somewhat parallel to the one that we use right now, but it in fact is more accurate. Um, so we are um, looking at a small, because of the way that the uh, legislative language is fashioned, we're actually looking at a smaller segment of the Massachusetts population that would be designated an EJ population, but that definition is more accurate. You know, there are fewer people included in the definition. There are fewer census block groups that are included in that definition, but you are actually pinpointing the communities that need the help, that need the further assistance from state and municipal forces to completely be part of our system. Um, and the MEPA, um, the MEPA uh, changes that you cited as well as trying to capture all of the uh, communities that would be, or, you know, all of the projects that would affect EJ communities. So in terms of what the direction that we're moving towards, um, it is something that is parallel to what we are moving towards. Thanks, Rishi. Councillor Edwards, how do you think the uh, legislation, if passed, is going to affect your work? Oh, well, I mean, a well, number one, as I mentioned during the displacement uh, conversations, you got to name a thing. You got you to call it out and you got to acknowledge it's there and you got to have some standards. So what gets, what gets assessed gets actually taken care of, right? And so if we don't have a working definition on, on environmental justice leading from the state, then it's, it makes it literally too local for it to have the general impact that we need. For example, Eversource, you know, that's a connection. The, the pipeline they're building is under the Chelsea Creek. It's between East Boston or Boston and Chelsea, two different cities. And so if we don't have an estate lens that actually defines what is environmental justice, then it leads Boston to do its thing and Chelsea to do its thing. And sometimes they can be played against each other or they can't. And so that's why, you know, having um, pullback and having that kind of uh, standard. And also it, it really tells companies um, how to approach the state of Massachusetts. You know, if they could just cherry pick which cities they want to be in, depending on which ones have strong, robust, you know, um, advocacy or don't, or some cities are dealing with so many different issues on equity and race and violence and so on and so forth, and they don't have the budget to take on an Eversource, that's what the state is supposed to do. And so that is why having that kind of leadership, that, those kind of standard settings, it doesn't matter if you're Brockton, Springfield, Boston, Newton, Sudbury. That's what we don't want, is that communities that are richer, suburb, um, are more likely to be suburbs, are more likely to be affluent communities, have better environments than the other ones. We need the state to set the standard. Excellent, thank you. And Dwayne, uh, you and ACE have been incredibly active in pushing for this legislation and have many years of, of work trying to push for better laws and policies in the Commonwealth. How do you think that the state legislation will affect your work? 
Oh, can you unmute? The, the legislation provides the baseline protections for EJ populations that are long overdue. Environmental justice is a civil right principle. All people have a right to be protected from environmental pollution and to live, learn, work, and play, and pray in and enjoy a clean and healthy environment, regardless of race, income, national origin, or English language proficiency. In a time of severe climate change, this means equal protections against the adverse consequences of severe weather, extreme temperature, and flooding. Currently, we are deeply concerned about the impact of COVID-19 on EJ communities, where rates of infection appears to be much higher than in wider, wealthier neighborhoods, and poor air quality has been linked to higher death rates. These alarming numbers are not a coincidence. COVID-19 has exposed long-standing health and environmental inequities across the state. Apart from COVID-19 outbreak, Residents throughout the Commonwealth face barriers to environmental justice. In Roxbury and Springfield, students in public schools, renters in public housing, and people of color suffer from asthma at much higher rates than the affluent peers and homeowners. The state-mandated study found that East Boston residents are exposed to airport pollution and as a result suffer high rates of chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder compared to populations living <laughs> further from the airport. In the Merrimack Valley, incinerators surround communities like Haverville and Lawrence, and in Reston, Massachusetts, residents lacking access to transit struggle to find economic opportunities. The passage of these bills would build on the historic work of the environmental justice movement, both in the documenting the scope of inequity and organizing to achieve environmental justice the benefits that would be available to all residents of EJ communities would have far-reaching quality of life impacts across the Commonwealth. Thank you. Thank you all. And for those of you participating who want to make your voice heard on your opinions of the environmental justice legislation, um, feel free to reach out to the conference committee at the State House. I'm sure they would love to hear uh, from all of you. And uh, lastly, we've, Duane, you just did a beautiful job articulating the issues related to COVID-19. We're, we're in a time where we've experienced more than eight months of COVID-19. We've seen the uprising against police killing of black and brown people, and we've all experienced new ways to learn and work in a virtual setting. There is just so much work to do. What can you panelists tell people in this virtual room to do so that they can contribute to advancing environmental justice? Uh, and why don't we start with Dwayne for this one? At ACE, one of our key tools has always been strategic use of the law. Our environmental justice legal services program anchors ACE organization and coalition work with a robust legal framework grounded in federal and state civil rights and environmental law. Right now, we're looking for new members to join the Environmental Justice Legal Services Advisory Board. This role, this role entails about an hour or two per quarter. It's not a fiduciary role. Rather, we are asking attorneys to use the expertise that, that help us take a deeper look at our legal strategy and vet potential cases for more information. Um, you can contact Sophia Owens at ACE staff attorney at Sophia 
S-O-F-I-A at ace-ej.org. Ace is a very lawyer-friendly organization. We love lawyers. We want lawyers. We, we know the value of having lawyers a part of our base building strategy and our strategy overall. So we will make it very easy for any and all lawyers to work with us on very complex issues. And we believe that this is one of the best strategy going forward relative to these complex issues. And, I, and one, one thing I will always say that without lawyers, you really don't have a civil rights movement. And that's, that's the reality. And that's why we are proud to be one of the only community-based organizations that have a full-time staff attorney. And we are looking to partner with and looking for other um, attorneys and firms to work with us on these complex issues. Thank you. Dwayne, how could anyone say no to you after that? I don't <laughs> think I can. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Rishi, what is something that people in this virtual room can do to further environmental justice? Well, Stacey, first I want to thank you for having me on here. Um, it's great to talk about these issues in this forum at the BBA. And as you know, this is you know, one of my homes. I've often been out in the audience here at these BDA um, uh, events, and um, it's a great value to all of us. And I have to say, given the many years that I worked as an attorney and you know, was part of this community, um, I, I think that you know, there's just, I'm gonna echo something that Dwayne just said, but from the other side, which is that you know, we need pro bono attorneys out there that are out helping um, EJ organizations on real cases um, and helping them um, negotiate complex environmental laws, layers of regulation, um, whether it be municipal and then you know with the state uh, policies and rights on top of that. Um, so we need folks in this room to go out and help do some of that work so that a little bit of the inequities are made more equal, even in terms of the legal knowledge here. So I think that's a little bit about what, what, what Dwayne was saying in terms of strategic and policy issues, but I'm talking about like the real, you know, when things really get controversial, we need some attorneys out there representing folks doing that work. Thank you, Rishi. And Councillor Edwards, what other wisdom can you share today about how people can help? Well, first I want to thank Dwayne. I'm, I'm a former legal services attorney. So anytime, anytime people love attorneys, is, <laughs> it makes my heart skip a beat. We don't often get that much love from people. <laughs> For those of you are the members of the bar, we should be doing happy dances when we do get um, positive reinforcement and love from the community. Um, so I'll just say that outright. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Um, but um, not even but. In addition to that, I think um, what's really important is, is for people to get involved locally. You know, I, I'll just say this, you know, not just for self-interest. People just can't vote only when it comes to the presidential. You're, you're direct how your traffic is moving, whether you have access to bus stops, how, what kind of food and recycling program are in your schools, that's, that's at the local level. And so whether you're gonna have, um, a, we have a community gardens and ordinances that allow for people to grow their own food, uh, whether you could have roof gardens, all of these things, the zoning that requires the roofs be painted white versus black tar, all of that happens at the local level. And, and I think there should be more standards held. You know, I get a lot of questions about, uh, you know, traffic. I get a lot of questions about crime. But, you know, 
rarely do I get, unless I'm seeking an endorsement for an environmental group, a questionnaire that says, what have you done for the following things? You know, hold me accountable, hold local folks accountable. This room should be pushing for that, that the very local level, what's the minimum things we expect counselors, alder, aldermen's or whatever cities to be doing with the baseline. We'll rise to the occasion if we're told we have to. That's excellent. Thank you all for your very passionate and thoughtful responses to that question. Um, before I open it up for um, audience and, and uh, participant questions, I just want to note that, again, part of our goal for this event was to be able to provide information about very specific pro bono opportunities with organizations. So I'm really grateful to Courtney Simmons of Davis Malm and Jamil Moore from the Department of the Interior, who have compiled a detailed uh, list of pro bono organizational, excuse me, environmental nonprofit organizational needs. And I'm going to turn it over to Courtney to talk through that document, which was emailed to everybody in advance of uh, today's panel. Courtney. Thanks, Stacey. So um, we really wanted to put together this handout of different environmental, nonprofit environmental organizations that are in need of legal services. Um, in the past, we had done, we had previously last year, actually the first time done a networking event where we tried to pair um, lawyers with um, nonprofit environmental organizations looking for the pro bono legal help. And um, unfortunately, that event did not happen this year. So we thought this was another great way to try and um, in, in lieu of having the in-person networking event, um, another great way to pair the attorneys um, with the, the expertise that they can provide these organizations with to um, look at proposed legislation, draft memos, draft legal opinions, help them with litigation, all those sorts of things. So um, the handout that was circulated lists, um, I think we have about, I think we have 11 organizations on there um, and certain ones have a more um, focus on environmental justice issues um, specifically, but um, all of them are great organizations and um, within the details provided by the organizations, you'll see a summary of the type of work that they do and the type of legal assistance that they are looking for either now or going forward. So it would be greatly appreciated if everyone participating here could take the time to look at that list and see if there is an opportunity for some good pairing there and you to be able to provide um, those types of legal services to these organizations. Courtney, thank you so much. That's excellent and wonderful. And um, we have two uh, environmental justice pop, uh, organizations who have contributed and, and have pro bono needs. So Dwayne mentioned ACES Needs and Green Roots is another organization that's included in the list that Courtney just described. Um, so we're going to open it up for questions. You are welcome to type questions in the chat, or if you have a question, um, you can also unmute and ask. But I'm going to start with a question that we got in writing. This is for Rishi. I am wondering what EEA is doing to reach out to organizations and groups representing EJ communities that it would like to hear from. Um, that's a great question, and thank you for asking it, because it's been something that um, I have been trying to put some effort into. So um, one of the first um, things that I did after coming in was to reach out to some EJ organizations that I knew were very active and that I had known from my prior work 
at the state as um, having represented EJ populations around Massachusetts. So I did some direct outreach to them. Um, later on, I had the good fortune to be invited to come in to attend the EJ Legislative Roundtable sessions on a routine and regular basis. Thank you, Stacy and others. Um, so they have been a great source of information for me and um, perspective setting and a resource as I work with, um, you know, my colleagues at EEA. And I want to just say that it's important to note that, um, you know, the state is not a monolith. There are so many people involved in making a decision and there's, there's such complexity um, of the perspectives that are brought to a table when decision making happens. So that if I'm able to reach out to EJ groups, get some of that perspective on real on the ground um, uh, you know, goings on, I'm able to bring that perspective to the table where the decision is being made. So it is um, very valuable to me to be in touch with these EJ groups. Um, and I consider it to be the most important part of my job. So that's why I'm sort of here saying, anybody wants to reach out, please do. You know, my number's up on the website and I'm happy to share it, that's all. Thank you, Rishi. And this next question is also for you. Uh, so the question is, EEA is very involved in COVID plans and has been for the past six months. What has EEA done to reach out to EJ communities to understand and consider the impacts to those communities? Well, we've been very aware of the neighborhoods in which COVID has been um, really running rampant. And we've also been aware of the way that that Department of Public Health overlay intersects with our EJ map. Um, and so we've been um, attempting to be sensitive to those issues. In addition, the AG's recent report on air emissions and COVID vulnerabilities is something that we've also been trying to integrate into our decision-making. So um, it's a process you know, that's, that is ongoing that I feel has influenced the way that we've been working in these recent months. Thank you, Rishi. And um, all of you should have the ability to ask a question by unmuting. If you have a question, if you can either type it in the chat or just note that you have a question and that way I will um, invite you to unmute. So I see that we have a question from Alice Arena from FRAX. Alice, um, would you like to be able to ask your question orally? If so, please unmute. And if not, I will ask it for you. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, I can ask. I can ask it orally. Um, hi, Rishi. Hi. I, I want to note that Executive Order Five Six Nine, um, which has to do with all the, the climate um, climate things, uh, was signed in two thousand sixteen, and I believe you're the first person in this administration in this particular role. Can you give me concrete examples of what the EEA is doing? to enforce EJ policy in light of the fact that we currently have no legal enforcement ability. Um, in particular, outreach in our area has been non-existent. Um, and in our area, it's language um, issues that are th the biggest barrier. And Alice, where do you live Why, when you say in our area? Um, I'm, I am from Weymouth, but we are talking in particular about the um, environmental justice neighborhoods in Quincy, Quincy Point, yeah. Germantown. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think I have. I think I am the first person in this role since that um, executive order was signed in 2016. I mean, I just want to point out one thing that I've been realizing is that although we have always been trying to do language outreach through our agencies in various ways, we have not done that in a solid or concrete, uniformly, or, you know, uniformly implemented manner. So I'm aware of that. And that's something that I'm trying to standardize across the board. We do have, when you say that the EJ policy has no um, enforcement capability, that may be true in some respects, but there's many ways in, in the language context that we have other concrete things that we stand on. So for instance, under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which protects three classes, one of which is national origin, we've always construed that to mean language. And so um, we are required to do that under federal law, as I said before, we're a recipient of federal funds. And so that is something that I strongly you know, put forward whenever I'm trying to um, uh, you know, garner money for public participation and sort of raise the awareness within EEA staff about doing this type of work. Another thing that we um, stand on in doing our language access public participation work is um, there is an administration and finance bulletin number 16, the language access plan bulletin, which applies to all of the executive um, offices um, where, where we are uh, required to undertake language access and public participation. And it has some enforcement muscle there. So, and the EJ policy itself does pinpoint the agencies to which it applies and it does pinpoint the aspects that we have to look at in an environmental protection when we take environmental justice principles into account. So these are all things that, although EEA has um, put forward in other contexts, it hasn't always been in a uniform way. So in my role, I'm trying to do that in a more standardized, institutionalized way and so that we can do it as we implement our programs um, it does not seem like an add-on. This is a, a, a huge part of what I'm trying to um, do in my role now. Thank you. Um, and also thank you for uh, bringing up Title VI because it's something that we have been noting to um, anyone that will listen <laughs> that in fact, this is federal law. So thank you very much. Thank you, Rishi and Alice. Um, I see we have a question from Charlie Baring in the chat. Charlie, do you want to unmute and ask it directly? Okay. Uh, I would just have been posing that question because I live in, uh, in Watertown, which is, uh, has a very low minority population and uh, very high housing prices, which are continuing to rise. And I, several of us in the town have been struggling with the question of how do we open the town up to make it more accessible <clears throat> under those circumstances? And I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on, those, on that question. Well, I will take a shot at it. I believe Watertown is an entitlement city, meaning they receive HUD funding. So they fall under the firmly furthering fair housing regulations and also under the fair housing planning tools. Uh, meaning that Watertown 
has uh, analysis of impediments that may still be in play, but usually Watertown will do it with a group of other towns. And when I was working in fair housing, I would know that better. But um, Watertown is connected to analysis of impediments. So, so basically Watertown more than likely made a series of promises to HUD, the federal government, that they would do things to further um, integrate the town. And there's a certain, you know, certain promises and impediments that Watertown are having and the certain solution sets that they put forward. So you guys more than likely is under the fair housing slash and firmly furthering fair housing. You have some, some regulations and um, framework to discuss fair housing planning tools that could be applicable to make um, Watertown um, at some way um, more affordable. And I'm not sure if Watertown is, is 40B, is, have they met their 10% affordability, um, um, the, 40, the 10% um, affordability for the, the municipality? I, I believe we have, but uh, I mean, that's part of my question is, I've heard a number of people say that 40B should go further than it does. And I don't really know how that should be done. But anyway, thank you for that uh, response. That's very helpful. No problem. Yeah, Councillor Edwards, do you want to add on? Yes, um, just to note that, you know, this, the affirmatively further for housing amendment that could also be passed in Watertown as well is based off of federal standards, as we've discussed, and it's about protecting many classes. So it's based off concentrations of poverty and wealth. That is something that is, is it violates the standard looking at other protected individuals, whether they're, um, I believe under federal standards, people with disabilities, families, families are protected as well. They are the number one discriminated body or person in, in housing actually is, is families. And so it's seniors looking at all the different kinds of ways in which people are pushed away and pushed away, uh, pushed away from opportunity. And the goal is to take meaningful actions to remove obstacles to opportunity. And that's but a zoning amendment that you've already passed in Boston? I'm sorry? That's a zoning amendment that you've passed in Boston? We will pass this year. Great. Thank you. Also, also I just want to say that, um, like Councillor Edwards was referring to, you know, protective classes come in all, is, is, is you know, in Massachusetts, everyone is a part of a protective class. So is a part of policy and imagination to make places like Watertown, Newton, Brookline, a more fairer and more accessible to more people um, in the seaport <laughs> and a lot of other places in the city of Boston. But we have, we have the legal tool, it's the political will, and it's basically activists um, that's gonna really push this process through. But you have some regulatory legal frameworks to kind of make this happen. Well, thank you for those responses. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Rishi, do you have anything you want to add? I, I do not have anything to add to those two expert opinions. That's great. And I'll just add on uh, a slightly different note. It's I think it's really helpful when um, majority white communities and wealthier communities can have residents let their legislators know that they too support 
the environmental justice legislation. I mean, we really need um, legislators across the Commonwealth to be supporting this. So some, certainly that's something that um, Watertown and other communities can be doing. And uh, supporting the conversion of municipal fleets to electric vehicles is key. That will have benefits in your own community as well as environmental justice communities by reducing the amount of fossil fuel polluting vehicles that are traveling through. So that is also something that can be done um, and each of us can be advocating for in our own homes. I don't see any other questions in the chat, so I want to invite um, anybody to just unmute if you have a question now to ask our wise panelists. Okay, well, hearing none, I'm going to close us out. I want to deeply thank the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties section and the Environmental and Energy Law section, as well as the BBA, for allowing us to put on this program today. A huge thank you to Councillor Edwards, to Rishi, to Duane for your wonderful remarks today, for making time in your incredibly busy schedules to educate us. And thanks to all of you uh, for joining today. We hope you found it to be a wonderful program and please take a look at that pro bono opportunities list and see how you can help. Thanks everyone. Thank, Thank you. you Stacey. Thank you to the BBA. Thank, Thank you all so much. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank you.